Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Now today there, is a, there are a lot of verses, so I'm going to ask everyone to be sure they have a copy of the passage in front of you. It's not enough just to have the insert that has only a few verses, so have your electronic version, your hard copy. If you need the Pew Bible, it's on 914. And have that open to 914 or 915, and you will have the passage before you. It's the way to get the full impact of uh, walking through this sermon on a sermon, really. This is Stephen's um, epic sermon uh, before, uh, in his trial, in his defense. Uh, and so I want you to have all the verses there at your disposal. I'll walk through them, and I'll cite those verses as I go so you can follow. To this point in the book of Acts, the focus of church expansion has been limited to the Jewish people, Um, uh, those in and around Jerusalem in the temple area who are there for the Passover, still there now, and they have been the first converts to Christianity, thousands of them. With the story of Stephen that we have come to, uh, this passage opens up the witness of Jesus Christ in the early church to the Gentiles. It, It comes through this because of the Apostle Paul, who was Saul at this time, and his witness to this event, his part in this event. Now, we'll take two weeks to go through this passage, uh, so you'll see on the outline five points that are emboldened. We'll look at the first three, first three points today as we walk through this story about Stephen and his preaching, his martyrdom, and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that comes forth from this. And very personally, this story reminds us through the example of Stephen. The gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely worth dying for. Absolutely it is. It's a stewardship we have. We have learned the secret to eternal life that the world longs for, doesn't know, and will deny. But we know it because of the risen Christ And we should be willing, if called upon, and God won't call most of us to do this, but we should be willing, for eternity's sake and people that we care about around us, that we die for this message if we had the opportunity. Hear God's word as I read Acts chapter 6. We'll start at verse 8 and then read to the first verse of chapter 7 to begin. And Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will Change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? 
bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, we ask for the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit to make your word plain to us. Please bind the truth of this passage to our hearts so that we might be changed more into the likeness of Jesus. Give us clarity of understanding and the ability to obey you. Please encourage us by your gracious saving hand in history. Lord, give each of us a refreshed sense of your grace to us in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It really is true. When a person honestly understands what is at stake in this world, they cannot help but give testimony to Jesus Christ as Savior when they've been bought by him. And this is what we witness in the early church, this exuberance going from a people who were shy, concerned, and hiding to seeing the risen Christ and recognizing even death cannot stop this message, cannot stop this risen Savior. When you realize the serious consequences of our sin as people, in the brevity of this fleeting life, in the eternal length of the life to come, sharing the sure message of the risen Christ becomes your priority. Given all the early Christians had seen with their own eyes about Jesus, it makes their sense that after his resurrection, that they were free from death now, and they could go forth and say what was true. Instead, they feared for the death of their friends and their family and those they loved for the state of their sinful souls. So the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that through trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life, this declaration became the passionate commitment of the early church, no matter the cost, and Stephen becomes the first ultimate example of this. We see through the first martyr in the Christian era what the gospel is worth. And very simply, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way for people to be saved from their sins. So it is always, always, always worth preaching, even when the anger of the unrepentant rages against those who are preaching. Let's meet Stephen first in verse 8 of our text, but we go back to verse 3 from last week to see a general overview of the grouping Stephen's part of. He was one of the first deacons, you will remember. It says in verse 3 of chapter 6, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Then verse 4, they chose Stephen. So we know he's a man of good repute, well-known, well-respected by the people, trustworthy, faithful, honorable. They chose Stephen, it says in verse 4, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith. He trusted in God's promises. He was full of the Spirit, meaning he had believed on God's promises and was specially enabled to speak boldly about these things. He was a man of wisdom. He knew how to understand life, how to interpret life with spiritual eyes. He had the full view of reality because of this. He believed in God's promises. Then in verse 8 of our passage today, and Stephen full of grace and power. Grace and power. What a description of a Christian person. Full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Here is this man of deep faith, faith in Christ. He had tasted the grace of God in Christ. And once someone tastes the grace of God, they can show grace to others. And that is a powerful combination for the gospel. 
A person who knows their own sinfulness and how they could not do anything to contribute to salvation, but rests in Christ, they receive the grace of God, they can then show that grace to others. And only in the truest sense can believers, saved by Christ, extend this. That's grace and power. That's a person full of grace and power. A humble person who's yet powerfully used by God, doing great wonders and signs among the people. Think for yourself, do you know somebody who is full of grace and power? It's not a description we give to too many people. I only have a few in my life that I can think of that really I would describe as as filled with the Spirit and full of grace and power. One of them is David Calhoun. Dr. Calhoun has been a mentor of mine for over 25 years, and from the time I met him, he's been racked with cancer of one sort or another, constantly dealing with chemo, taking pills, uh, pill version intravenously, radiation constantly. In the whole of the 25 years that I have known him, this has been his state. Yet he's full of grace and power. Now he depends on a feeding tube to be nourished. He has to have oxygen to breathe. He can't talk any longer because of the damage done to his esophagus and his his, uh, vocal cords. All the years of chemo and radiation have finally reached this point. I reached out to him uh, last week and asked him how he was doing. He emailed me a few days ago and said, Tony, thanks for the email. Yes, I am experiencing some major problems resulting from my many years of cancer treatment. It is difficult and discouraging. But I am finding that when the trials are greater, he giveth more grace. He giveth and giveth and giveth again. He said, I am very restricted in what I can do, but I can still write. My book on Calvin's Institutes was published by Banner of Truth last year, and another book of mine will be published in November. It is titled, in their own words, Testimonies of Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and John Bunyan. I remember often the good times with you and friends at Redeemer. Please give everyone my warmest greetings. By his grace, David. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Empowered specially in this apostolic era to heal and to cast out demons, to preach and to teach, to serve the people. And the Jewish leaders raised in opposition against him. They tried to dispute him in what he was preaching about Christ. Verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So he's speaking with wisdom and the power of the spirit full of grace and power. What are the charges that they bring? What could you possibly bring against Stephen, described this way? Let's look at verse 9, and we'll see the charges against him. Some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. They were different local congregations of Jewish people living in those times from the areas they came from. Remember, many traveled from afar to come to the temple to give sacrifice during the Passover time. But they had synagogues or house churches that they would go to to worship, and they worshiped according to where they came from, it seems. So at least five different synagogues and representatives of those synagogues rose up against what Stephen was preaching to confront him. But look at verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit 
with which he was speaking. So they were not able to confront his teaching about Jesus. They couldn't, they couldn't counter it. They couldn't stop it. And so they resorted to another method. Now remember, Stephen filled with the Spirit. Now it's not to say we all could be just like Stephen, but it is true that Jesus promised his followers early in his ministry the following in Luke 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you will, def- will defend yourself or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And God was delivering on this promise, powerfully working through Stephen. Even the leaders of five synagogues could not counter his claims about Christ. So they resort to spinning his teaching in order to make up charges. Look at verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. It would be like today somebody tweeting out that so-and-so taught or believes a certain something. Other people see that tweet, wow, that, and they retweet and retweet and retweet. And before you know it, everybody thinks the person said something that they didn't say. This is the ancient equivalent. They secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they're saying that he is speaking erroneously about Moses and God. That's a huge charge against somebody. Verse 12, it continues. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. That's their usual method when they can't answer the, answer the arguments. They arrest them. Verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, which is the temple, and the law. Are you catching all the charges they're bringing against him? They're huge. Moses and God. He's speaking erroneously about Moses and God. He's speaking in error about the temple, this place, this sacred place. And he's speaking against the law of God. And it's not just a little bit. Verse 13, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. They cast Stephen's message as opposing their view of Moses and God. They depict Stephen's teaching as opposing the temple and the law of Moses. They spin Stephen's preaching and summarize it in verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Total smear job on Stephen and a complete spinning of his teaching. They knew that any disrespect of Moses in the temple would stir the Jewish leaders. Now, we can imagine what Stephen was teaching. We get a glimpse of it in just a few moments. But think of the apostolic message on Moses and God. He was no doubt speaking about Moses as the prophet of Messiah, as Moses was. A prophet who would be replaced and superseded by Jesus, even by Moses' own prediction. He didn't speak ill of Moses, but rather explain his limited purpose. Jesus, as superior to Moses, was spun as him disrespecting Moses. What about Stephen's teaching of the, about the temple, the holy place? The temple represented God's favored presence with his people. It seemed to transcend even Roman occupation to say God is with Israel. Stephen, no doubt, preached 
Jesus is God with us. He's the fulfilled Emmanuel. That's what the temple drove people to look forward to because of its insufficiencies, its inadequacies. The temple was a forecast of God with us fulfilled in Christ. Jesus spoke of tearing down the temple and raising up a better one, which of course was himself and his resurrection. Jesus is superior to the temple was spun as Stephen disrespecting the temple. What about Stephen teaching on the law of Moses? The law represented God's righteous standards that no person could ever keep except one, Christ. Stephen surely preached that Jesus came to fulfill the law exactly as Jesus proclaimed. The law leads us to Christ who saves us. The law can't save. Only Jesus can. Here again, Stephen's teaching on the law was no doubt spun to depict him as disrespecting the law. Verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. You can see what they're doing. John Stott summarizes it wonderfully. What Jesus taught then was that the temple and the law would be superseded, meaning not that they had never been divine gifts in the first place, but that they would find their God-intended fulfillment in him, the Messiah. Jesus was and is himself the replacement of the temple and the fulfillment of the law. Verse 15, I want you to notice something and see if you catch it. In verse 15, and gazing at him, All who sat in the council, not just a couple people noticed it. Everybody saw this. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. His countenance looked different. They were accusing him of teaching something wrong, yet his face looked different. Now, where do you know in the Bible of someone whose countenance was changed because they had met with God and received the message. Exodus chapter 34. And it's interesting who the person is. Remember, they're accusing Stephen of what? Misrepresenting Moses, misrepresenting the temple, misrepresenting the law. And now, just like Moses, who in Exodus 34 we read, when Moses came down from Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain... Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. Stephen, full of grace and power, giving the full understanding of what Moses, what the law, what the temple means. His face shines like that of an angel. And they're accusing him of disrespecting all of these things. Here was Stephen speaking of Christ as the fulfillment of Moses, the temple and the law, and his face was shining like Moses' face shined. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. In verse 1, the high priest said, are these things so? Now, for the balance of our time this morning, let's look at this sermon. And it is a sermon. It's not just a lesson on redemption history. It's that. But a sermon also works that truth into the conscience of the people who are hearing it. And it's masterful what Stephen does here. 
he is charged with misrepresenting Moses, the temple, and the law, right? So he's going to give an answer that will give explanation of Moses, the temple, and the law. But in so doing, he is using a mechanism to convict the audience. He's giving a common thread as he walks through three distinct phases of redemption history. In what he's reminding all the people, when God speaks through his prophet, there are always those who have a hard heart when they hear it. This is significant because this is opportunity for those listeners to examine the hardness of their heart with someone who's called by God to preach his word. Let's walk through this sermon together. Have your text open. And the high priest said, are these things so? Starting at verse 2, he lays out a period of time between Abraham and Joseph. Verse 2, Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into his land in which you are now living. He's reminding the people that you are only in this land because of God's gracious actions towards Abraham, who did nothing on his own to earn this. God, by his grace, promised something to Abraham and that's, what you're, that's why you have this position you have, he reminds the Israelites. Verse 5, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Stephen's building the background and foundation for who Israel is, completely recipients of the grace of God. Verse 6, and God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. He's forecasting their time in Egypt. Who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. So he's starting to talk about or conjure up pictures of Moses, pictures of the temple eventually, pictures of all that God did graciously to call them out. Verse 8. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision, a sign that they were God's people. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Uh, The Abrahamic covenant is in reference here. And it's the key to the Old Testament covenant understanding of God's grace for his people, his plan of redemption. God graciously calls Abraham from a place of unbelief and brings him into relationship with himself. He reveals himself to Abraham. God's gracious salvation is on display through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it comes up to Joseph. Verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Do you remember why they were jealous? Because Joseph had received visions that depicted what God would do to save Israel through him. And their response to the message of salvation through Joseph was to kill him. That's an important underlying theme that Stephen is going to weave through this sermon that goes through redemption history, which, by the way, shows he has a perfect command of the history. He's not wrong on Moses. He's not wrong on the law. He's not wrong on the temple. He says more in a short sermon than probably most of those leaders even knew themselves. 
and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. And in what are five of the most important words in the Old Testament, and as a theme throughout the rest of the scripture, the second part of nine verse, the second part of verse nine. But God was with him. Who? He was with Joseph. God was with Joseph despite the opposition from those closest to him. Verse 10, God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. Now there came a famine through all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. Do you see who he's equating the people to? The older brothers of Joseph, our fathers. You know the ones that tried to kill Joseph, who was going to save us? Now they're going to him. He sent out our fathers on their first visit, and on their second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Despite the wickedness of the brothers, those who should have known better, God miraculously superintended over the events of the world so that the seed of the Messiah would be safe and Abraham's covenant would be kept intact. God's promise to Abraham kept alive through the providence he showed with Joseph. The brothers tried to kill Joseph. What they intended for evil, God intended for good. Messiah would still come, and God's promise would be held true. Next, Stephen moves to another epic in history. Comes right after the time that they've been, they've been some time now in Egypt. Verse 17 of chapter 7. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Do you see how Stephen is wrapping them into the story? They cannot deny their part in the story. They cannot deny what they know to be true from Scripture. He's showing perfect command over who Moses is. Verse 20, at this time, Moses was born. Let me tell you my view on Moses, Stephen says. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own, her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. This is a very high view of Moses that Stephen has. Stephen is carefully respecting Moses for his role in redemption history. No disrespecting him in the sermon. He's speaking of his role in the Abrahamic covenant, keeping it alive. He's speaking of God using Moses to shape the nation of Israel. From Israel would come Messiah. Moses is a key figure in this redemptive work of God. Stephen shows a perfect understanding of Moses in his role. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He's supposed to be the liberator of Israel. Verse 25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. 
And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? This is the guy that God's raising to liberate them. Now, he had his own issues. But this would be the man, and they reject him. Verse 28, do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Moses was being raised up by God, but his fellow Israelites did not recognize him as such. Moses was going to free them from bondage, but their hearts were hard toward him. God was identifying Moses as the liberator of Israel, but the people were hard-hearted towards him. Make no mistake, it wasn't that the Israelites were morally opposed to Moses killing the Egyptian. They were worried that it would mean a harder life of slavery for them. They didn't believe in God's redemption. Stephen continues in his explanation. You see what he's doing, right? He's, he's equating the people that are accusing him with all the hard-heartedness we see in the story of redemption. Verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, I, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. More careful accuracy from Stephen recounting the life and work of Moses a clear explanation of how God would use Moses to free the people of Israel in order to keep the Abrahamic promise of Messiah alive and the expansion of that offer of the Messiah to the world, not just to Israel. Stephen reminds the listeners of something very important, though, in verse 35, once again. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to them in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Notice Stephen's reference to the angel here and the description of Stephen as having a face like an angel, this angel giving revelation that would help them, that would give them salvation. Verse 37, this is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses is saying there will be someone else. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. The second person of the Trinity himself is engaged even in the life of Moses and would eventually supersede him. That's always been the plan. Moses understood it. Israel witnessed it to some degree. This is what Stephen is accenting about Moses. He's accenting how the people of Israel did not accept him at first. Despite his great work of deliverance, what did they do when Moses was up meeting with God? Verse 42, Stephen continues, But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan. The images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile 
beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of the witness, which is a tabernacle, the precursor to the, to the temple. Our fathers had the tent of the witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. So Stephen shows perfect command over the history of Moses. He shows the advent of the tabernacle, which eventually becomes the temple. Stephen also reminds the people about the way many Israelites rejected God's revelation. Stephen is showing the propensity of the Israelites to have a hard heart towards God's graciousness. Beware, we have a propensity against the grace of God. Every one of us does. We want to trust ourselves. It is a propensity. Christians will feel this conviction and they'll turn to Christ for it. But recognize this true of humanity, it's on display with the Israelites in Stephen's day and across history. In this sermon, Stephen is putting the guilt back on his accusers, showing them to be hard-hearted, just like the brothers of Joseph and the people in Moses' day. He doesn't stop with Moses. He brings events to the time of the temple in order to address all of the concerns about his supposed erroneous teaching. Look at verse 45. Our fathers in turn brought it with just Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before the, our fathers. So it was until the days of David uh, they held on to their idolatry. David, verse 46, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. He's mentioning the temple now. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands, as the prophet says. And here's this quote from Isaiah. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. The temple is a condescension of sorts for weak, per, weak people to get a picture of God's presence to ultimately be fulfilled by Emmanuel, God with us, Christ. The reminder in Isaiah is that heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all this stuff? I mean, the temple's not God. It just points us to the presence of God and something much greater is to come. Through Moses, God revealed himself. Through Moses, the tabernacle was constructed. Through Joshua, the land was conquered. Through David and Solomon, the temple was constructed. All these gracious actions of God kept his Abrahamic promises. And what is the continual response of the people? They continually turn away from God and unto idols. Stephen brings the sermon to a dramatic, epic climax. You can't, we use the word epic too much today, but this is an epic climax. He's walked them through an accurate picture of, of the history of redemption. No one could deny. And now, how does, he, how does he cap this thing off? How does he bring this sermon to a close? He doesn't use the word hard-hearted. He says something else. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? The prophets were sent to rebellious Israel to have them turn back to God and his promise of redemption through Messiah, and they rejected this, and they killed the prophets for it. What does that have to do with this? Couldn't get any more clear or direct. Look at the second part of verse 52. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of who? the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. 
Please feel the full impact of what he is telling the audience. There's only two responses. Repent. Yes, we have done this. Or anger. How dare you say this to us? And by the way, to touch on the law, remember, the misteaching of Stephen was supposed to be about Moses. It's about the temple. Verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You had the law and you killed the Messiah. Wow. Stephen just walked them through redemption history, hitting on all the charges against him. They said he was wrong on Moses, but he reminded them about their hard-heartedness against Moses. They said he was wrong about the temple, but he reminded them about their hard-heartedness against what the temple represented, the presence of God with them, fulfilled in Christ. They said he was wrong about the law. He reminded them of their constant sin against the law to the point of even killing the Messiah. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. We stop here. But I want to close by delivering an encouraging admonishment that comes from the book of Hebrews on this exact topic. The book of Hebrews was written first to the Hebrews, those Jewish, belie- those Jewish Christians who were struggling about leaving their Judaism. And it was a reminder about how Christ came to fulfill all those things in their Judaism. But listen to it through the ears of people who may have been believers for a long time. Maybe you have been. That we don't grow hard-hearted at hearing the word of God when it comes to us. Because that's always a danger for Christians. And if you don't know Christ, if you just wandered in here and said, whoa, what did I just step into? That's a lot of verses you just covered. You have the Bible open. Do not ignore this book. This is from God. And the author of Hebrews says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, the Holy Spirit says, and this is that special encouragement or admonishment or challenge to all of us. The Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of the testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. See, They always, and Stephen says, you always against the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers. He says, brothers, talking to Christians. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Lord God, we are moved by this sermon by Stephen. And for every believer here, please build our faith in Christ through the hearing of your word this hour. For all of us, give us soft and tender hearts that are convicted by our shortcomings and our sins 
and compelled afresh toward the righteous one, Jesus Christ himself. Lord, may no person here be stiff-necked against you, against your Son, our Messiah, our Savior, the Lord Jesus himself. Amen.